Hi there, I'm Crystal. I've got the second Bible reading for tonight, and you can find it um, at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. If you want to follow along in the Bible, it's really easy. It's the third last page of the whole Bible. So. And just a, a bit of background, Revelation just tells us a bit about what to expect when Jesus comes back. Okay, so Revelation 21, verse 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Bone cancer in children? What's that about? These words were recently spoken by atheist comedian Stephen Fry when interviewed on Irish television by a few weeks back. The host, Gay Byrne, asked Fry to suppose that it was all true and ask what he'd then say to God when he, was con- when he died and was confronted by the Almighty. Fry replied, I'd say... Bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world where there's such misery that's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. The presence of pain and suffering in our world is a common reason to reject the existence of a good God. A loving God, it's claimed, would never allow this much pain. One atheist blogger wrote, Bone cancer in children does it for me. I'm fine with God punishing adults. By the time we reach adulthood, we've all done something evil in the eyes of a biblical God. But children? A two-month-old with bone cancer? No, sorry, but that small child has done nothing wrong. A God with the ability to stop bone cancer in children but doesn't is an evil God. After the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, uh, which left over 200,000 people dead, one commentator wrote, If God is good, sorry, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. Leading atheist author Sam Harris concluded, either can God can do nothing to stop such catastrophes or he doesn't care to or he doesn't exist. God is either impotent, evil or imaginary. So what do we say? 
Does the presence of evil and suffering in our world render God evil, impotent or imaginary? Now, as we talk a little bit about suffering and think about this issue tonight, we do need to unpack a little bit about what suffering actually is because there's a sense, to it, sense in which suffering is a matter of perspective. And at one level, it's too simple to see a world with misery and lay the blame solely at the feet of God. One person's suffering isn't another person's joy. So, watching hours of English Premier League football is supreme joy to myself, but absolute misery and suffering to my poor wife. First world problems, in fact, is a term which is coined, which describes a form of suffering of those in the developed world. It often highlights the triviality of this type of suffering. So, for example, it's like saying, I hate it when my house is so big that I need two wireless routers. Or I have too much cash in my wallet that it hurts my butt when I sit. Or I don't have enough dip for my chips, but if I open up another container, I won't have enough chips for my dip. Now, without attempting to trivialise suffering at all, there is a sense in which suffering is a matter of perspective. Moreover, not all suffering is necessarily bad. I heard a powerful story once about a man who lost most of his eyesight after he was shot in the face after a drug deal gone bad. Now, we would say that blindness is objectively suffering, isn't it? It's objectively bad. It's even maybe even evil. Yes, but the man admits that he had been an extremely selfish and cruel person. He'd always blamed his constant legal and relational problems on others. Now, the loss of sight had devastated him, but it also humbled him. And he said, As my physical eyes were closed, my spiritual eyes were open. I finally saw how I'd been treating people. I changed. And now, for the first time in my life, I have friends, real friends. It was a terrible price to pay, and yet I must say it was worth it. I finally have what makes life worthwhile. Now, I don't want to second, for a second, trivialise suffering or to suggest that some suffering is somehow an illusion, as Buddhism teaches us. But we do need to be careful in suggesting that all suffering is by definition evil. It does depend a little on how we define suffering. And don't also hear me say that suffering is somehow a good. Real pain and suffering is painful and difficult and can lead you to cry out, why? Why does my poor child have bone cancer? Why did my friend have a miscarriage last week? Why did so many people die in the Indian Ocean catastrophe? And Why did my mother die suddenly in an airport in Helsinki last year? Real, objective suffering are things like death, mourning, crying and pain. Yet our culture is ill-equipped to handle suffering. We don't really know how to respond. There are no answers to the why questions. The reality of first world problems in our world in some ways reflects our culture's lack of resources at properly accounting for suffering. Our culture doesn't handle suffering well. In fact, um, last year someone suggested to me the way I should respond to the sudden death of my mum was to keep laughing. 
Best-selling author Tim Keller says, Sociologists and anthropologists have analysed and compared the various ways that cultures train its members for grief, pain and loss. And when this comparison is done, it is often noted that our own contemporary secular Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history at doing so. In our modern culture, suffering can have no meaningful part. If, our, as our, if, as our culture proposes, the greatest good is individual comfort, freedom and happiness, then suffering is of no possible use, is it? The only thing to do with suffering is to avoid it at all costs. Suffering is an aberration. It's a disaster. And this, I think, is also reflected in our attitudes towards disability. The late disability advocate Stella Young wrote, Disability is often framed in medical terms as the ultimate disaster and certainly as a deficit. Our culture doesn't know what to do with suffering and disability. Twelve-week pregnancy scans are made to scan for disability. When a couple is faced with the prospect of a a disabled child, the favoured option for many is abortion. In fact, the UK's 1967 Abortion Act allowed termination of a pregnancy at any time if there was a significant risk of the baby being born seriously disabled. World-leading atheist Richard Dawkins said that it would be immoral, immoral to bring a child with Down syndrome into the world if you had the choice. His suggestion was abort, abort it and try again. Why? Because suffering, disability, in our world is the ultimate disaster. We, our culture, need to avoid suffering at all costs. It prevents us from reaching us our human maximum potential and happiness. Suffering is of no possible use in our culture. Hence, our culture offers no answers to the why question. Why suffering? Just keep laughing. Stephen Fry's question to God is certainly valid. I can certainly see why he gets angry at God in the face of suffering and injustice. Yet his criticism becomes empty, absolutely empty, when you consider the alternative. Because Fry offers no alternative. Materialist atheism, which Fry subscribes and which dominates our culture, has no meaningful explanation for suffering. Because the very, the very concept of meaning is absent in materialist atheism. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time now just unpacking this and exploring this a bit further to push this to its ultimate conclusion. Now, here Richard Dawkins again agrees. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, some people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Effectively, he's saying that the suffering that we observe in the world means that God can't have made it. Our universe has nothing but blind, Pitiless indifference. Our culture offers no answer 
to why. It just is. If Stephen Fry and Richard Dawkins are right and God is simply imaginary, then when we suffer, when we feel pain, we can do whatever we want. We can do it, but there's one thing that we can't do. We can't ask why. To the poor kid who has bone cancer, we just shrug our shoulders. Their little, poor, feeble voice on the operating table asks, Daddy, why do I have bone cancer? You just have to say, sorry, you're just unlucky, kid. Carl Sagan said, it is far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion, however satisfying or reassuring. The atheistic universe is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Atheism and our culture offers no answer to the question of suffering. So then, why do we seek meaning? Why do we, unique in the animal kingdom, seek to transcend pain and rather, rather than just simply meekly accepting our place as a helpless cog in an indifferent machine? At this point, atheistic materialism fails to adequately account for our human experience. Why do we seek to find meaning? We don't, why don't we just squeal and run like the animals? We want to know why. It seems that atheistic materialism denies something of who we are as people. It fails to account satisfactorily for why we do want to seek meaning in a meaningless place. It would almost even say that it's almost irrational to seek meaning. So, materialistic atheism fails at an existential level, but it also, also fails at a rational level. For suffering, the presence of evil actually gives an intellectual argument against naturalism and even for the existence of God. C.S. Lewis, the famed novelist, was once a committed atheist who admitted that he had felt, once felt the force of the... He had once felt the force of the argument of suffering for atheism, for an imaginary God. He believed this. He said, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. Yet Lewis recognised that this argument against God contained the seeds of its own subversion. Lewis wrote, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but... How had I got this idea of cruel and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Quite sure if you're following exactly what he's saying here. The argument is quite profound when you grasp it, I think. But what, what, what he's saying is that if you want to say that something is evil, you must have some kind of referent, something to compare it to, a concept of a straight line. And the issue becomes acute when you consider bone cancer in children. Atheists really shouldn't have a problem with bone cancer in children, should they? Because the universe doesn't care. There is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. If one clump of cells happens to be cancerous then, and cause a, a certain physiological reaction, then what does evolution care? What does DNA care? It says nothing. There is nothing. No reference to say, this is wrong. It is nowhere written. This is evil. Atheism doesn't solve the problem of evil because with atheism there is no problem to solve. There just is. Some people get lucky and other people get bone cancer and that's just how the way it is. 
Yet as soon as you say that something is evil, something is wrong, then atheism has a problem. It's the problem of good. Where does that good, that referent, that line, that idea come from? If atheism is true, then nothing is objectively wrong. As soon as we say something is evil, then atheism is undermined. Rather than the problem of evil suggesting or proposing that God can't exist, it demonstrates precisely the opposite, that atheism is is false and that there is indeed a God. But atheism also has a further problem. If we step back and say, okay God, all this suffering makes you imaginary, it doesn't actually help the situation, does it? You're no better off. Atheism doesn't alter or alleviate the suffering. You still have bone cancer, my mother's still dead and there's still masses of suffering in the wake of the 2004 tsunami. It doesn't improve anything. It just removes someone to blame. So how do we deal with suffering? Well, like Stephen Fry, our culture gets angry with God even though he's not there. It's a bit like saying, there is no God and I hate him. I wonder if the aggressive response of modern atheists, like Stephen Fry, of God allowing pain and disaster, is not that pain and suffering is incompatible with a good God, but that our culture doesn't have the resources to adequately account for suffering. Suffering is an aberration and our culture, our world, offers no answers to the problem of suffering and evil in it. So then, what about God? How can a good God give a child bone cancer? Maybe that would indicate that God really isn't good after all. I think that that's a very real possibility. Maybe God is an evil, powerful God who uses people as playthings for his pleasure and his capricious whim. Now, to answer, so we may accept that God is there and that he's powerful, but is he good? Now, to answer this question, I think we need to answer a prior question. How do I know anything about God at all? I want to propose that, so I want to propose that if a God is there, the most reliable way that we can know anything about him is if he reveals himself, if he tells me something about himself. Now, I also want to say that I think God has revealed himself most comprehensively and definitively through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, there's many reasons for suggesting or saying that Jesus was God. And quickly, I just want to outline a couple of them. Firstly, that Jesus did the works of God. He had the power that you'd expect from God. He taught with the wisdom of God. He was raised from the dead by God and was assumed by God, so assumed as God, by monotheists who didn't invent new gods. Jesus himself also made clear and unambiguous claims to be God and demanded people follow him as if he were God. Now, all this of course, now, just because Jesus claims to be God doesn't automatically make him God, but imagine just sitting next to the person sitting next to you. They introduce themselves as says, hi, my name's, I'm God actually, God in flesh, come down. How would you respond? Um, perhaps that person maybe acts as though they are you know, God's gift or God to the world, but they could be one of three things, couldn't they? The person sitting next to you, if they're really God, they could be one of three things. They are not God, 
and they know they're not, which makes them what? A liar. That's right. They could be, they are not God and they don't know it, which would make them kind of what? Crazy. Yeah, perhaps. Let's keep the alliteration going. Perhaps a lunatic. Crazy. What's the other alternative? That they really are God, which makes them the Lord. And you probably should listen to them and maybe you know, move along a bit and make sure that you listen to what they actually have to say. These are the three options that we have when we assess Jesus. And I propose that the best, evidence that we, best explanation for the evidence that we have for Jesus is that he really was the Lord. If Jesus, that, 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 this means that Jesus really was God who reveals himself in our world. Which means that I think that we can then ask Jesus our philosophical questions. Are you good? Are you powerful? Jesus, what about bone cancer in children? What does Jesus make of natural evil in our world? Well, in some ways this issue is addressed in the passage of the Bible that we had read before, Matthew chapter 8. If you have it before in either the Bibles in the pews, your own Bible or on your phone, uh, Matthew chapter 8, Jesus confronts this natural evil. I'm just going to look at a couple of verses here of it. Chapter 8, verses 1. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Here's natural evil, isn't it? Evil which has nothing to do with the actions of humans. A man with leprosy, it's not his fault. We could ask Jesus the same question. Leprosy, God, what's all that about? There's no explicit reason given for this man's suffering. It's just there. Suffering is a reality of the world which Jesus encounters. It's not because of karma, it's not because he's made some bad decision, it's not because he's been punished. The passage makes no attempt to explore why he's, like, why he's like this. It acknowledges kind of the world that we are, that we, ha- that we have. Now, whether this is the best of all possible worlds, there's no philosophical reflection. This is just the reality of our world. The, Bible's ex- the biblical explanation for the reality of suffering in our world is that our world is estranged from God. We are separated from him and his blessing. The Bible also acknowledges the presence of an evil presence, the evil one, which influences and infiltrates our world. The world is not right. This is what the Bible acknowledges. And hence, suffering is not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus enters a world of pain and suffering. He encounters a world with things like bone cancer and leprosy. God himself is here confronted with this problem. And so how does he respond? Well, the leper approaches Jesus and he asks a question. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This is Stephen Fry's question, isn't it? Isn't this the problem of evil? A loving God would want to eliminate evil. Lord, if you are willing, a loving God has the power to eliminate evil. You can make me clean. The leper highlights the two issues in his very, very simple question. It's it's almost as if he's pondered the problem of evil in his life before. Are you able? Are you willing? It's interesting that that the leper actually assumes Jesus' power, isn't it, and and questions his goodness. 
I wonder if this is a, almost a natural response to suffering in our world. C.S. Lewis explored the same question in A Grief Observed, writings he penned in the days after the death of his wife. You can feel, if you read the book, I'm not sure if you've ever read the book, but if you read the book, you can feel the raw emotion and pain that he feels as he cries out saying, he says he, at one point, what reason have we except our own desperate wishes to believe that God is good? Doesn't all the prima facie evidence suggest exactly the opposite? So Jesus, are you willing to make me clean? Are you good? Well, look at the next verse. Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Here the problem of evil becomes problematic. Jesus says, I am willing. Jesus does have the power to overcome suffering, but he also has the desire He willingly heals. It's almost as if Matthew is aware of the philosophical problem of evil. Is Jesus able to alleviate this man's suffering? Does Jesus have the power? Is Jesus able to alleviate this man's suffering? Is Jesus willing to alleviate this man's suffering? And the answer to both is yes. So what does this mean? Notice that Jesus, the God-man, doesn't suddenly disappear in a puff of philosophical logic. The philosophical response must be that God does have a reason for allowing suffering in this world. It's far too simple to suggest that the presence of evil renders God evil or impotent or imaginary. We see God in Jesus confronted with suffering and he deals with it. He cures the leper. A natural question then emerges, then, well, why doesn't Jesus just heal everyone? Well, later on in verse 16, if you look down, he does. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed and were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Now, I don't know what you ever make of demon possession there at all, but we can see here he heals all the sick. Everyone who comes to him to be healed is cured. Yet supposing that Jesus should just wave a wand and heal all afflicted people everywhere misunderstands the purpose for which Jesus has come. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the reigning presence of God. It's where God's kingdom rules. It's where God's rules. It's where there's healing and wholeness and unmediated, unsullied relationship with him. And Jesus is the king. So by healing, Jesus demonstrates something of what this kingdom of God looks like. It's a a glimpse, a sneak peek at the new order he's bringing. This material world is not all there is. And it looks amazing, doesn't it? Healing, health, cleanliness, order. Jesus' moral vision for the world in the kingdom of God is truly utopian and truly breathtaking. So Jesus' primary purpose is to bring in the kingdom of God and through this kingdom there is hope. Jesus demonstrates that he is the one who can bring hope and he is good. So how does this kingdom come? Well, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom in probably one of the most unexpected ways ever. A person who claims that a good God could never allow suffering has never adequately accounted for the sufferings of Jesus himself. 
As I said before, if God has revealed himself most comprehensively in the person and works of Jesus, and we see in Jesus himself awful, painful suffering. I posed the problem of evil once to a prominent atheist that I, in a public discussion that I was involved in. He was utterly convinced that the presence of evil in our world rendered God imaginary. But he couldn't take into account, completely overlooked, the sufferings of Jesus himself. That Jesus simultaneously affirms that God is good, that God alone is good, yet he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hence, it's far too simple to say that the goodness of God and that the suffering at the hands of God are by definition incompatible. Jesus, God incarnate, God become man, suffered terribly, unjustly, as an innocent man executed on a Roman cross for a crime that he didn't commit. Where was God in that story? Well, it was right at the heart of it. In his death on the cross, Jesus reveals more more of his goodness and power because on the cross he provides forgiveness for his people. Jesus dies our death. He suffers for us to bring reconciliation and forgiveness. God is good and is not removed from our suffering. Jesus, the God-man, dies lovingly for his people. So, why is there bone cancer? Why is there suffering? Well, I'm not always sure and I'm not sure that we're told of all the reasons. But when we see Jesus suffering on the cross, we know that it can't be because he doesn't love us. It can't be because God doesn't care. So through Jesus' death on the cross, he defeats evil, crushes the evil one and inaugurates this glorious kingdom of God the reigning presence of God, so that for all who trust in him can be a part of this breathtaking vision for life. But there's also more, because a dead God is not a particularly powerful God. But Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. After suffering, he, was, he conquered death to be raised to new life and to offer hope, hope of a new deathless world, free from pain, tears or suffering. Atheists hope for a better world, but this is a pretty vague hope to a starving African child or to a child with bone cancer. What hope does atheism offer to these poor children? What hope does Stephen Fry offer to the child with bone cancer? Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Removing God removes any sense of personal, future hope. But with Jesus, there is hope. Hope of a world without suffering, pain or death. That was read to us before in Revelation 21, which describes a new world, a world of the future, the world of the resurrection, the kingdom of God, where the estrangement with God, our estrangement with God will end. He will be with us and will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, pain or crying. If you extinguish God, you extinguish hope. The hope of the gospel and the hope of the Christian message is that suffering will end. Our culture fails to offer any convincingly explanation nor answer to the, to the, to the issue of suffering. A friend from school shared a message on Facebook the other day. 
It came in response to her battle with cancer and I think it typifies our collective thinking about suffering. She said, life is short, follow your bliss with abandon, love love those in your circle without fear or hesitation. Tomorrow isn't promise, all we have is now. That's it. That's the way to respond to suffering. Tomorrow isn't promised. Today could be your last day. You could walk out there now and be hit by a car and that's it. All you have is now and then nothing but what? Blind, pitiless indifference. Is there any hope? Or there is Jesus. The one who saw our broken world, experienced our broken world and offers hope. A world that can and will be fixed by Jesus who confronts evil, the one who experienced it and the one who cried out those pained words, those pained words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is the one who can reach out to us in our brokenness and despair and offer hope to each one of us saying, I am willing, be clean. Amen.